God, I thank you for your church. I thank you for your people that you have gathered together under your name to worship your glory, worship you in the splendor of your holiness. I pray for those of our our church who are away this week for spring break and scattered apart across different parts of the country, some who have gone to uh, warmer climates, Texas and Florida and other places, and and others who have stayed in in the uh, beautiful uh, sunny springtime here in Michigan. I pray that you would watch over these families, protect them, uh, care for them, and bring them back to us safely after a refreshing week uh, together. And as we open your word together, God, I pray that you would do the miracle of speaking to your people. Send your spirit to enliven uh, our, our time together, to open hearts, to open uh, minds, to, to open my voice, to open ears, so that we may worship you rightly. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. Now, when I was in high school, I got the a chance a few times to uh, be a referee for the elementary school's uh, basketball program. And this is the, the youngest kids in our elementary school. That's me on the left here in the picture, right? Had a little bit longer hair, and it's not actually me. It's a stock photo. But anyway, so we, these are the young kids, the first and second graders. They're just learning to, to play basketball. And so being a ref for them is really a joy because, uh, you know, you don't have to deal with the, the screaming parents and the, the angry uh, coaches and stuff like that. Really, the job of a ref for that age is to kind of direct the kids where they're supposed to go and tell them what they're supposed to be doing and sort of organize the, the mayhem a little bit. So it was a lot of fun. One of the rules that we had, because this was a uh, kind of a developmental sort of stage, is that you could only play half-court defense. So if the gold team shot at the basket and missed and the black team got the ball, everyone from the gold team had to go past half-court before they could start playing defense. So if you were on the defensive side and you got the ball, you knew that all you had to do was sort of, sort of curl up like this and everyone kind of run past you and, and go on your way, and then you could kind of dribble it up the floor or, or pass it to someone else and, and bring it up. The, the idea is to give each team a chance to really kind of develop their offensive skills and play, and so it's a little less of a one-side kind of a game. Um, but the thing about the defense at this level of play is that even the half-court defense is uh, pretty lax. I think that's probably about the, the best way to describe it. Um, if, you, if you watch uh, these kids, some of them are really into it, some of them are, are really engaged, they're trying hard to steal the ball and all these things, but, but most of them are just there to have fun, and they're sort of vaguely in the vicinity of the person that they're supposed to be guarding, maybe within, you know, three to five feet, but maybe they're looking at something else, they're not really paying attention to the game, they're just there to have fun, which is great, right? Now, some of you have been watching the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament, and, and if you have, then you've noticed a very different kind of defense from what the first and second graders do. You've seen some really aggressive, full-court trapping defenses where we, in the, the, for the first and second graders, we'd call contact very, very closely. If there's any kind of contact, it's a foul, you blow it down, and you, and you start, uh, start the play over. But for, for these guys, they're letting them bump into each other, they're letting them trap hard, they're letting them steal the ball, they're blocking shots. It's a pretty physical level of pay. Now imagine if you're one of those second graders, and you suddenly get thrown into an NCAA-style defense. I mean, even aside from the the size differences and stuff like that, the the poor kid is going to be shocked and confused and have no idea what's going on. They're going to think that the refs have have totally lost it. They don't understand why they're letting these other guys uh, play full-court defense, why they're letting them steal the ball away, block it, and and kind of bump bodies. They're they're going to be totally shocked and, and surprised. They're going to think the refs have totally lost control of the game. 
You and I are kind of like those second graders when it comes to suffering for professing the name of Jesus. Because we live in a time and in a place where being identified as a Christian and proclaiming the name of Christ is is relatively easy. Few of us have faced severe persecution for uh, claiming to be a Christian, for claiming the name of Christ. But that has not always been true, and it is certainly not true in all areas of the world. Today, right now, there are Christians who are killed explicitly for their faith in Jesus Christ. So an organization called Open Doors, which is uh, really dedicated to serving persecuted Christians around the world, documented last year, in 2013, documented 2,123 Christians who were killed for their faith. And that's just a very minimal level, a minimal number. That's the base level that they could find. That's actually documented cases where they, where they know of specific Christians who were killed for their faith. Probably a more realistic estimate is something like four times that, something like 8,000 Christians killed in 2013, last year, for professing the name of Christ. At a very, even at the very minimum level of 2,000, it would take less than a month to wipe out everyone in our whole church at that rate. And at the more realistic level, it would take just a few days to kill everyone in our church for professing Christ. And that's just those who are actually killed for their faith, those who are actually martyrs. The, the, the number who are actually killed make up a small percentage of those who are persecuted for their faith. So that same organization, Open Doors, estimates like something like 100,000 Christians around the world are being persecuted. They're suffering for proclaiming the name of Jesus. For those of us who live in a context like the United States, where it's relatively persecution-free, if we got thrown into a setting like, say, North Korea, where Christians are specifically targeted for persecution today, this could be a huge shock to us. It'd be like going from, from second-grade basketball defense up to NCAA Division I aggressive-style defense. And it would be easy for us, if we were thrown into that kind of a context, to think that, that something is wrong, that maybe God isn't really in control, that that perhaps something has gone wrong with his plan. Well, Peter does not want that to happen to us. He wants to make sure that, that if we find ourselves suffering for Christ, it's not a shock to us. He's going to tell us that, that suffering is not a cause for alarm. It's not something to be surprised at. It's actually an opportunity to glorify God. So our goal this morning is to prepare to suffer for Christ. It's to move from surprise or shock or fear in the face of suffering to really being able to glorify God and trust Him and put our life in His hands if we should suffer for Christ. So this morning we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. If you haven't already turned there in your Bibles, this would be a good time to do that. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 1203. So it's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. We're going to see in this passage two steps that move us from a reaction of surprise in the face of suffering to a reaction of really joy and trust in God in the face of suffering. The first step we're going to see is that if you are suffering for Christ, it means you really belong to Jesus. This is what Peter says here, 1 Peter 4. We'll begin in verses 12 and 13. Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 
So the bottom line is persecution should not be a surprise to Christians. A world that rejected Jesus is a world that is going to reject Jesus' followers. We must never, ever forget that the Son of God who came to rescue the world was rejected and beaten and executed by the very ones that he came to save. And Jesus, before his death, told his followers to expect this. He told them that this was going to happen to them too. So John 15, before he died, he says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So if you are suffering for your faith, it means you're being treated like Jesus. You you share in his sufferings, or in Peter's language, you are participating in the sufferings of Christ. And if that's true, it means that you really belong to Jesus, And if you belong to Jesus in suffering, then you're going to belong to him when he returns in glory. And that's where the the true rejoicing happens. When, When Jesus returns again, the Bible says every single knee in all of creation is going to bow before King Jesus. And every mouth, every tongue is going to confess King Jesus because he's the one who's on the throne. Every creature in all of the world, the entire cosmos, everything bowing down, to this king. So if you belong to him when you're suffering, well, look forward to to belonging to him when he's revealed in his glory too. If you belong to him then, you will belong to him in the future as well. Still, it might seem odd to us that that Peter says that we could rejoice in participating in the sufferings of Christ. And if that seems odd to us, the the next phrase, the next verse is going to seem uh, equally counterintuitive. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Have you ever asked someone how they're doing and they respond by saying, I'm blessed? Or perhaps you've been talking to someone and say, you know, I feel really blessed right now. Well, what do we usually mean when we say that? Well, it usually means that things are going really well. Maybe our family's doing well. Maybe we're healthy. Maybe our job's going well. It's just it, things are seeming good to us. That's usually how we use the term blessed. So in the evenings when I sit down for dinner with my family, when we pray over the meal, I often feel a sense of God's blessing, that there's food on the table, and that I have this wonderful family. I have a, an amazing wife and these wonderful kids, and I have uh, incredible friends. And I praise God because I feel blessed by his hand in my life. But what happens if I get put in prison for preaching the gospel? What happens then? Do I still feel blessed? Well, we've got an example. We've got examples, multiple examples of of the early church and what happened when they were put in prison. What did they do? This is what happens in Acts 16. I'll tell you the story, uh, and then uh, we'll pick it up kind of halfway, and then you'll see the response that these guys have when they're put in prison. This is from Acts 16. It's Paul and Silas as they're preaching the gospel. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. So, a bad start. And they had been severely flogged, and they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So, they're doing the right thing. They're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
severely flogged, beaten. They're suffering specifically for proclaiming the gospel, and they're put in prison. How do they respond? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They are praising God and singing of his glory and of his grace in the middle of their time in prison. And Peter himself was not a stranger to this. We see in Acts 5, Peter was part of this group that is, that is beaten by the Jewish leaders, and the immediate response for them is that they rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And Peter, it's not a blessing just to be insulted. It's not that you are insulted is a blessing, but the fact that you belong to Jesus, that's the blessing. The fact that God's Spirit is on you is why you are blessed, which means that no matter what anyone else does to you, you are blessed. There's no, there's, it's a blessing that no one can take away from you. You belong to Jesus. So if you are suffering for Jesus, You don't have to worry as if God's not in control or as if something really weird or strange is happening to you. It's not a surprising thing because you belong to Jesus. And followers of Jesus from the very beginning, like Jesus before them, have suffered and been persecuted for their faith. So if you're suffering for Jesus, you have to understand that that means that you really belong to him, which means you are blessed beyond comprehension. And of course, sometimes we are going to suffer for wrong things that we do. So Peter next turns to self-examination. We've got to look at our hearts and see, well, why are we suffering? Why are we being persecuted? So verses 15 and 16, he says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. In other words, you are not a Christian martyr if you kill someone and are executed by the state. That's because you've done something wrong. And you are not suffering persecution as a Christian if you get a parking ticket because you parked in the wrong spot. Those are just the natural consequences of your actions. But he's saying if you suffer for Christ, then you can glorify God because you are blessed and you are named a Christian, that you belong to Jesus. There's a sense in which suffering is, is almost like a legitimization of your belonging to Jesus. It's evidence that you really do belong to him. There's a theologian at Duke University uh, about uh, 10 years ago who was named by Time magazine as America's best theologian. And I heard that he kind of received that, that uh, uh, honor with a little bit of ambivalence. He responded to something like this, saying, you know, well, Jesus came and he taught and he preached and And they rejected him and they killed him. And here I am teaching and preaching and they're giving me an award by some big magazine. So there's a bit of ambivalence there. You know, if if they don't treat me like Jesus, does that mean my message is different from his? Peter's not saying that if you do not suffer for a Christian, you are not really a true Christian. If you don't suffer for Christ, it doesn't mean that you don't belong to Jesus truly. But it does change the picture. See, we might be shocked if we should suffer for Christ, but he's saying, no, 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 Christ suffered, so if you really belong to him, there are times when you very well might face suffering because you have a different king. You don't belong to here. He said throughout 1 Peter, you're, you're strangers here. You're foreigners. You're resident aliens. So wherever you live, you're not a true, full citizen of that place. You and I, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, we're not really full citizens of of Ludington or Mason County or Michigan or or the U.S. We live here, but we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We belong to Jesus, which means sometimes 
we're going to look different than those around us, which means sometimes we're going to be treated differently than those around us, and sometimes that's going to include suffering and persecution. But we shouldn't be surprised if we are treated as outsiders because we belong to God's kingdom. So my dad, when he was uh, early in his ministry, did a lot more traveling, and, and on one of these trips, uh, he went to Tokyo with, with another missionary friend. And then he went into this uh, department store as part of uh, kind of walking around the area there, and, and this aggressive salesman came up to him and started uh, showing the guy uh, that my dad was with uh, all these different clothes, and, you know, oh, this will fit you, this will fit you. And then he turns to my dad, and he just starts laughing. My dad's thinking, okay, what on earth is going on here? Now, some of you have met my dad. My dad's 6'4". He's got a big beard. Uh, he's white. Uh, so in Tokyo, he sticks out as someone who's, who's not from around here. He looks a little different than the other people in that country. And so he found out later that, well, the salesman didn't have any clothes that would fit him. You know? <laughs> he's too big for the kind of clothes that they have there. So he was laughing out of embarrassment that they didn't have anything to offer him. But, but my dad very much felt like an outsider at that time. I mean, here the other guy's getting treated normally, and then he gets laughed at. So it's obvious that he's not from here. He's different. He's being treated as an outsider. Uh, for us as Christians, we belong to God's kingdom. We're not full citizens here. We're full citizens of heaven. We are living here. We're sojourners living wherever God has placed us as God's kingdom people. And that means that sometimes we're going to be sticking out as different people, unusual, peculiar people. And sometimes that means that we're going to suffer for our faith. If that happens, if we do end up suffering persecution for proclaiming the name of Christ, Peter doesn't want us to be surprised by it. See, our, our relatively persecution-free context is pretty unusual in the history of the church more broadly. From the very beginning, almost from the first weeks of the Christian church, there have been people who have suffered and died for claiming the name of Christ. Look at the book of Acts. Stephen, in the early chapters, killed for proclaiming the name of Christ. And all through the history of the church, people have died for their faith in Jesus. If that should be unusual to us, if that should be to us perhaps a sign that God is not in control, that his plan isn't going forward, it might be an indication that our thinking has been too much shaped by the gospel of American prosperity than by the gospel of a Savior who came and was rejected and killed for us. There are people in our country who claim the name of Christ, they claim to be Christians, that say that God's blessing means that you are always healthy if you have enough faith, and you're going to make a lot of money if you have a lot of faith. It's the gospel of health and wealth, a prosperity gospel. Now, I don't think anyone in this room would, would explicitly say that, at least I hope not. But I think it's easy for that kind of a mindset to, to come into our thinking and play out in how we view God and view our circumstances. We think, well, I'm not blessed by God if I'm not healthy and wealthy, if I'm not doing well. If I don't feel blessed in those terms, then perhaps I'm not truly blessed. You and I need to hear Peter's words. Don't be surprised if things don't go well for you. Don't be surprised if you're suffering for the name of Jesus. Because it means you really belong to him. And that's the first step he's taking. Suffering for Christ means that you really belong to Jesus. So if we're going to move from surprise or shock or fear at persecution to rejoicing in God and putting our whole life in his hands, we've got to make that first step. You've got to belong to Jesus. If you suffer for him, you have to understand that that, that means that you really belong to him. That's the first step. 
The second step is, is realizing that suffering for Christ means that God is beginning his great judgment, his great judgment that's going to renew all things. This is how Peter puts it. Look at verses 17 and 18 of 1 Peter 4 with me. He says, For it is time for God's judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter's saying that it's time now for God's judgment to begin. Now, it might seem odd to us that, that God's judgment starts with God's people, but that's really what the Old Testament teaches, that God, God's people, Israel, understood that God first comes to judge his people, and then he goes to judge the whole world. So we could see this pattern if we look at, at Malachi uh, chapter 3 and then look at Malachi chapter 4. You can write the references down. I don't think we have them on the screen or anything like that. But God is first saying, Malachi 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and, and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So you see, God's judgment starts with his people, but we have to recognize that God's judgment on his people is very, very different than God's judgment on those who are his enemies, those who are not his people. Judgment here coming on his people is a refining kind of a judgment. It's like a refiner's fire that, that heats up the precious metal to remove the impurities, remove the dross, and make it more pure. And that's the outcome here. It's a people who are able to worship God rightly because God has brought his judgment and has refined them. Or the other uh, analogy there that he uses is of a launderer's soap. So that as a launderer bleaches out all the impurities. It's a difficult process, but it's purifying the cloth so that it's made clean and made right. That's what God's judgment on his people is. But God's judgment on those who are his enemies is very different. You look at Malachi 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. It's a picture of complete destruction. But then, verse 2, again a reminder of what this means for God's people. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. God's judgment comes in refining his people, purifying them, and then in destroying the wicked. That's the, the same pattern that, that Peter's talking about here. God's, God's judgment starts with his people. So if you are suffering, it's God's refining of you. He's making you pure and holy so that you can live your whole life worshiping him. It's not going to consume you. It's going to make you whole and pure. If we talk about God's judgment, we, we have to keep this, this one verse in mind. That I think is a summary of a lot of the different verses, but Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, that's a crucial point. If we're going to talk about God's judgment, we have to understand that for those who are in Jesus Christ, it's not God's wrath coming against them. Jesus is taking care of that. 
He has forgiven our sins, removed our guilt from us. Jesus died to rescue us from the punishment that we rightly deserve for sinning against God. Which means that when judgment comes, you have this great promise. There is now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about being destroyed by God. Instead, you are refined, not consumed by his judgment when it comes. A quick word on on verse 18, if you have a question on what that means. If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That first phrase there, uh, it's hard for the righteous to be saved. This is a quotation from from Proverbs. Um, Peter's not saying that that your salvation is in doubt, as if somehow, perhaps, Jesus' death is not quite enough to save you. That's not what he's getting at here. He's saying it's a hard thing. Look, the Son of God came and and died on a cross. That's a high cost for your salvation. It's a hard thing. And those who are Christians have to persevere, that they are in Christ and they remain in him, which means sometimes they're going to suffer. So yeah, it is a difficult thing to be saved. But it's sure because of the blood of Christ, because you really belong to him. God's judgment is coming on you. It's not going to consume you. It's going to refine you and make you whole. It's a very different picture for those who are not in Christ, though. What Peter's saying here, though, especially in verse 17, should give us, as Christians, great hope, even if right now we find that we're suffering for Christ. Because he's saying that that suffering for Christ means that God's judgment is beginning, which means that God's rescue plan is moving forward. It means that God is going to restore all things. His restoration is, is at hand. We saw last week the end of all things is near. We're in the last stage of, of redemption history, the last stage of God's great rescue. It's in effect. It's bringing close to completion. If you're suffering for your faith, it means it's getting all the closer to God's restoration of all things. So that should be a, a moment of excitement for us to see that, yes, the end is near, that the good end is near. If we're suffering for Christ now, we can trust that, that God is going to continue his judgment and bring the restoration of all things to bring the world to the good end that he has for it. So your, your suffering is confirmation that God is actually doing his work. Suffering for Christ means that God is beginning to renew all things. So the first step is to see that, that suffering for Christ means that you really belong to him. You really belong to Jesus. And the second step is, is to have the joy of realizing that, that this means that God is beginning his work. He's beginning to, to complete the, the work of restoration that he started in Christ. And what's the result if you know those things? Verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So if you are suffering for the name of Christ... You don't change anything. You put your whole life in God's hands and you continue doing the good that you were doing that got you persecuted in the first place. Because your whole life is put in God's hands. Doing good is this great concept in the book of 1 Peter. It means means that you are doing the good that the gospel has, has welled up in you. It means living the gospel life wherever you find yourself, no matter what the consequences. It's the same thing that he started back in, in chapter 2. He's saying, live such good lives, lives that reflect the goodness of the gospel, that other people who are not yet followers of Jesus will be able to see the good that the gospel has grown in you, and as a result, they will glorify God by putting their faith in Jesus, his son. That's what we're to do as Christians, whether or not we face suffering as a result. Now, if you are actually being persecuted for your your faith, it might be tempting to think that God is not in control. 
So if you live in a region of the world like we don't, but if you do live in a region of the world where Christians are routinely targeted for abuse and persecution, it might be tempting to think that God's not doing his work, that his plan's not really going forward. It's easy for us to allow our circumstances to determine how confident we are in God and in God's plan. But that is a dangerous game to play. Think about it this way. Two months ago, my family moved to a new house. And if you've moved, and a lot of you have moved recently, you know that it's just a huge hassle, right? But the, the house we moved into has three bedrooms. We've got two kids and another on the way. So we decided we would be in one bedroom, the two kids would share a bedroom, and there would be a third bedroom for the baby when the baby arrived. Uh, that meant that for two months, that bedroom, the third bedroom, was not used, which meant that all the boxes we didn't know what to do with yet ended up in that third bedroom. So if you walked into that uh, the week of moving, you would not have been able to see any floor space at all. Now, you may or may not know this about me, but I'm a really big organizer. I like to have everything in its place and, and a place for everything, that kind of a thing. So this really bothered me. So I thought, okay, at least in the first week, I'm going to set up the crib, set up the changing table, at least line all the boxes and stack them up against the wall so I can at least see all the floor space until we could actually tackle the room rightly. Well, finally, uh, a couple weeks ago, Emily and I finally had the chance to uh, take on the baby's room and get it all set up for the baby. Now, if you had taken a picture right then, before we started doing anything, and then an hour later, you would have thought that we were making backward progress, that we weren't doing anything right, because it meant that we got all these boxes out, there were, it looked like a bomb had gone off, and there was just kids' clothes, baby clothes, baby toys, gear, just all over on the changing table, on the crib, on the floor. You could barely find any place to, 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 where you could actually see the floor in the room. It was just stuff everywhere, and you would think, well, are you guys crazy? You're supposed to be putting this room back together, but here, everything's just everywhere. It looks like backward progress, but it has to get worse before it can get better. You have to get the whole mess out there to see everything that you have so that you can put everything back in the place that it's supposed to go. At any particular time in history, we might, we might look out at the world and look out at how the world treats Christians and think that God's plan is just not working. It, it looks like it's a, a big mess. It, it actually looks like things are getting worse for Christians. What's going on here? But God's plan is going forward, and there's nothing that can stop us. If you end up suffering for Christ, remember, it means you belong to Jesus. Remember, it's time for God's judgment to start. And judgment starts with God's people refining them, not consuming them, but refining them, and then bringing the world to the good end that he has for it. See, this second step is really crucial because it reminds us of the big picture of what God's doing. And it should bring excitement for what's happening here. So the first step, it gives us assurance that, yes, we really belong to Jesus, even if we're suffering for his name. And the second step is to give us excitement because it means that God is beginning to renew the whole world. We've got to keep that, that renewal in, in our minds. We've got to keep it before us. I like to go back to Revelation 21 and 22 again and again and again to see that this is what God is doing. Let, let me remind you just a, a little snippet of what's going to happen when God brings the restoration of all things. This is what he says in Revelation 21. Her loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Suffering for the gospel, suffering for the name of Christ means that God is, is doing his great work. And if you know the end, if you know that God is going to make all things right, that he comes and he brings his judgment, not consuming his people, but refining his people, but his wrath against his enemies and removing all the forces of death and darkness and, and hell, then we know that God's plan is effective. We know that he is in control. This passage, I think, is incredibly freeing because it means that your circumstances don't have to dictate your attitude or your feelings. So you don't have to be in despair every time something bad happens to you. You don't have to question whether you're truly God's child if something goes wrong in your life. Your sense of God's love doesn't have to dwindle when you don't feel blessed in the terms that we think of blessing in typically. It means that nothing can shake you. Your circumstances don't determine how you feel because you are a child of God. Even if you are suffering for Jesus, you know that you are blessed because God's Spirit's on you. If you have a sense that things are not as they're supposed to be in this world, that there shouldn't be this much pain, there shouldn't be this much sorrow, relationships shouldn't be this hard, it shouldn't be this hard to make a living, if you have a sense that things are not right in this world, it's an echo pointing back to Eden, remembering that God created the world good, everything formed well, everything functioning exactly as God meant it to. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and see God's good creation. And if you're not content with the broken world that you see around you, you long for a time when things are not so difficult, when things are not so dark, then you are longing for the restoration of all things that God promises to bring in the new creation described in Revelation 21 and 22. Don't let the sense that things should be better slip away from you. Don't lose the holy discontent over a broken world. Instead, take a step back and look at the big picture of what God's doing. Look back to God's good creation, a world that he made perfect and right, hurt by human rebellion and sin in the fall, but redeemed by the Jesus on the cross and to be restored when God sends Jesus back to make all things right, to bring his salvation and to bring his judgment. And if you have that big picture in mind, if you know that that is true, then your circumstances, no matter what your circumstances are in the present, whether you're blessed with with food and friends and family or whether you're blessed by persecution and insult and injury, then you will know that you can put your life in God's hands which means that you can rejoice no matter what your circumstances are today because you belong to Jesus and all of your hope is in the day of God's restoration. Right now, not many of us are facing suffering or persecution for our faith, at least not in a severe form, but that might not always be the case. And if you do find yourself insulted for the name of Christ, if you do find yourself put in prison for Jesus, or even facing execution for claiming his name. You don't have to be shocked or surprised. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to feel like something really unusual has happened. You don't have to think that God has lost control. Instead, 
you are able to rejoice, being glad that you are counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ, because it means you really belong to him. It means you really are a Christian. God's spirit is on you, so you are blessed no matter what. And remember that that means that God's restoration is near. If, if Christians are suffering, if they're being refined by God's judgment, it means that his restoration of all things is at hand. And when you know that, you're able to put your whole life in his hands and you're able to spend your whole life pointing to the glory and goodness of God revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, and spend your whole life pointing others to him. So here's the challenge for us this morning. Put your life in God's hands and rejoice that you belong to Jesus. Please pray with me. God, most of us are infants or children when it comes to facing persecution for the name of Christ. On the one hand, we see that that is a huge blessing and we thank you for that. No one would want to suffer if they don't have to for Christ. Suffering is not a fun thing. It's not a thing that we would seek out. And yet we know that it might come. We very well might face suffering and persecution for proclaiming Christ. I pray that no matter what our circumstances are, we would live boldly, a bold gospel life, a bold witness to the grace and life that are found in your son Jesus. Let us never, never shy away from persecution, never shy away from suffering, never back away from a powerful testimony that proclaims your grace and your love. Instead, make us living lighthouses, shining light into darkness wherever we find ourselves. May we be beacons that, that show the world who you are. God, have mercy on us. Through your Son, we pray. Amen.